0: everyone and welcome to the growing point podcast i'm your host jeremy boychin our goal with this podcast is simple to provide alberta farmers and agronomists with timely relevant and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with various experts in all fields of agriculture we hope that the agronomic information you find in this podcast and future podcasts provides value to your farm. So in this podcast, uh, we are talking with Carrie Matheson of 2020 Seed Lab, she's the operations manager there, uh, and Dr. Kelly Kelly Turkington, who is a plant pathologist and researcher at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. The topic of the podcast is focused around seed testing um, and what the results of those seed testings mean um, to how you're gonna manage that seed lot uh, in that upcoming season. Um, so we chat with, with Carrie about um, how these seed tests are conducted um, and then relate that back with Kelly Turkington on what that means in terms of, of plant diseases uh, and, and maybe how to respond to some of the results that you see Um, So they're both a wealth of knowledge and and I would highly recommend getting a pen and paper out for this one Because there's a lot of information that comes out of this. So um, thank you for listening uh, and enjoy First of all, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to chat with me today Um, I I greatly appreciate it and uh, I know it's gonna be a great conversation. Carrie you work at 2020 seed labs. Could you maybe give me a little bit of introduction as to what you do and uh, what 2020 Seed Labs does?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a senior seed analyst. So I started working at 2020 Seed Labs about 15 years ago. Um, I started as a trainee. There's a, a program within the Canadian industry to accredit analysts to make sure that we're all conducting standardized testings uh, in the same way. So, I started as a trainee. I got all of my accreditations um, that I could get, actually, through the Canadian industry. About maybe 10, 11 years ago, I became the operations manager, so I moved uh, a little bit away from the testing side of it and a little bit more into the, the business management and uh, lab management. Um, as a lab, 2020 Seed Lab provides uh, services kind of on a broad spectrum for industry, uh, at the very core of it, we provide accredited testing, which allows um, Canadian producers to get results on certified seed for sale in Canada. But beyond that, we provide hundreds of other tests, which are, are for information and to help farmers and producers and corporate companies make good decisions and to mitigate their, you know, to manage their, their risk when looking at selling seed, producing seed and and just in general seed quality.
0: So when you say accredited test, does this, does this mean this is a standardized test across all labs, or or if producers are going to different labs, are they going to see different kind of analysis if they're going to different locations?
1: So under the Seeds Act, there are three tests which are federally regulated, and it is germination, purity, and smut tests. And that's it. So as far as the federal government is concerned, those are the tests that are standardized. And if you submit a sample to any accredited lab, the same procedure will be conducted to the same standard for only those three tests. Other tests, such as figure tests or disease testing, are not standardized. So it's up to the lab to determine a a best method for the customer and to employ methods that make the most sense for for um their level of expertise and for what kind of information their customers need.
0: just so i'm I'm clear so that the fungal test then would not be a federally Um, kind of standardized test. It would be based on your expertise, 2020 Seed Lab's expertise, how to best conduct that. Yeah,
1: you're absolutely correct.
0: So, I mean, you you hit on it there, some of the major testing areas um, that that producers can look at. Um, Could you maybe give me a a description of of an overall description of what these seed tests are in terms of of purity, germination, um, smut, and, and the fungal as well?
1: Sure. So a germination test is a test conducted under optimum conditions. And the objective of this test is to determine which seeds are capable of producing uh, mature and sustainable plants into their adulthood under assumed good conditions. Uh, the germination test will also tell you what seedlings are, which, which also give you abnormal seedlings, and abnormal seedlings are seedlings which have a critical defect in them, and in such they won't produce a, a viable plant into adulthood. So germination test really looks at the seedlot's ability, each individual seedling's ability to grow into a mature plant based on their genetic potential. And when I say genetic potential, I mean that all the, the conditions are fairly controlled in the germination test. The, um, only the, the conditions which are required for germination from a physiological standpoint are applied. And all other types of environmental biases are removed from the test. So absolutely best conditions optimum conditions, best case scenario is really what a a germination test will give you, and that's the test that is uh, accredited. And different than a Vigor test, which I imagine we'll get into a little bit later. An accredited purity test is often misunderstood. Um, We get a lot of uh, phone calls here at the lab where people ask for a a purity test. um, And a accredited purity test is a test that looks at a segment of the seed lot. It's usually around one kg. And we pull out other species which aren't meant to be there. So if we're looking at a barley crop, um, we're going to be pulling out wheat. We're going to be pulling out other, say, weed seeds. And then we're going to classify them according to the, the Canadian standards and then issue a report. And the whole purpose of that that testing is to to determine if that seedlot meets the minimum grade standard in order to sell under that pedigree. And then the SMUT test um, looks at the percentage of embryos which are infected with SMUT, basically.
0: So you, you, you talked a bit about optimum conditions when it comes to the germination test could you give me those parameters what is optimum conditions that you're 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 germinating these seeds under
1: right so we're looking at temperature we're looking at consistent moisture and appropriate aeration and that's really all that a seed needs to begin its its growth Um, and in the lab we do this most commonly on a blotter paper it's like a thick fibrous paper it's a special paper made for seeds and it just provides constant consistent moisture to the seed. We plant the seeds on this blotter paper um, and for let's say for a barley crop we're going to plant two replicates of 100 seeds in between a moistened blotter paper and it will go into a 20 degree chamber for up to seven days and there are times in which we'll also employ a um, dormancy breaker when we're we're seeing issues with dormancy and certainly we're seeing lots of issues uh, this year.
0: I've mean, i heard heard a couple questions and I've heard a couple comments about um, producers testing their own seed germination, um, you know, taking 100 seeds planting it in some soil and and putting it at their window. Um, Is this going to provide similar response as to what you guys are doing um, at 2020 or is this something maybe to be cautious of? Um,
1: I would say that that's something to be uh, cautious of. Control that we have in the laboratory here is something that cannot be achieved outside of uh, a strict laboratory environment um, the other thing that I think to really be cognizant of is the the real information that we're getting from the germination test exists in the abnormal seedlings it's the abnormal seedlings it's the the symptoms that we see present, it's the behavior of the seed, which as a seed analyst and as a professional can really tell us a a story about what's happened to that seed. Has there been a a condition during harvest which has been harmful to your seed and and to its potential seed longevity? These are things that as a seed analyst you're, you're trained to see, but you also just know intuitively because, you know, by a certain point in your career you've looked at tens of thousands, I don't know, millions of seedlings probably. And by that time, you've made some of your your own observations about seedlings growing in, in particular patterns. So as a seed lab, we're able to look at the symptoms of those abnormal seedlings and give producers information about what may have happened in their field that could be a problem not just now but further down the road. This gives uh, producers a, a better idea of their, their kind of complex uh, Risk out there when they're trying to make decisions about what sort of seed they should be using next year.
0: So you mentioned that we had increased dormancy this year. Um, is is this? Are you are we accrediting this to late harvest? That wet conditions? Um, like, what do we see that's going on? That's that's causing this?
1: Dormancy is often a, a symptom of, of a deeper quality issue. Now, there's a an amount of dormancy that's normal and is even desirable. And when we look at, say, native species of grasses or, sorry, of uh, any crop type, it would be a big disadvantage to the species if um, if seeds were to just drop off the mother plant in the fall and start to grow. Then the seedlings would, would die, right? So the, there's a natural tendency towards dormancy, which is normal and good. But in cultivated crops, we want to have a balance of that dormancy in there. Deep dormancy often isn't a Advantage to crops, and when cultivated crops, which are not bred to have deep dormancy, start to express deep dormancy, uh, then often it's um, because they're they're compensating for for a quality issue. They're not their their chemical is their chemical biochemical biochemistry is out of balance, and so. Let's take this fall, for example, when we've had um, a difficult harvest. We've had a really long, elongated harvest time. We've had crops which sat in the swath. We had crop crops. We had snow um, and lots of frost. In this time there's a tendency for the seeds to, and, and probably chemically as well, but I'm not going to speak on that side of it, to change the balance of, um, of those hormones to prevent the seed to, from starting its growth because it's not at an advantage at that point for the seed to start growing. It needs to protect itself because it's, there, there's been damage internally to the seed. So often the seed will do that by, by expressing dormancy. Once the dormancy starts to um, Start to leave the seed, say over time, maybe two months, three months, five months. then we start to see that those same crops express uh, issues with frost or um, a lot of those seedlings which are are seeds which are dormant at the beginning of the of the um, fall, are then actually dead seeds by by springtime. So dormancy is something, deep dormancy in the laboratory is something that um, we really want to pay attention to. We do a lot of talking to producers and to anybody who's using our seed test to, to help them really understand how complex of an issue dormancy is and what, are, uh, what kind of risk it poses uh, to seed that you may want to use in the spring.
0: So I guess then this, this kind of brings the question when should I be testing my seed? Um, if we have a tough year and I know that there's going to be dormancy issues and we do a seed test but knowing that the results if I do that test again maybe this time of year in March the results are going to be completely different Um, how do I uh, is there is there a way kind of best practice to know based on the fall that I've had maybe when I should be testing my seed?
1: Yeah sure Um, there's always a balance between you know, budget and and best practice. So as a seed lab, we're going to say test as much as you can. Um, More information is always going to be better. But that sometimes, you know, isn't within everybody's budget. Uh, A best practice, I would say, is always test off of the combine. Test it once it gets into that bin or as it's going into the bin and find out where you're starting. That's really key. Germination figure, and disease. Right at that point, find out what you're dealing with so that you can monitor it through the season. Um, then I would test it again after cleaning, and again, and it, but depending on the test results, of course, because there's indicators at in right after harvest that that seed may be at risk. You might want to test it sooner, or you might want to, you know, make a different plan for that seed. But if you test it again after seeding to determine that you know your stability is still strong. Um, this is seed that you're thinking to use. If possible, and in bad quality years, I would absolutely test it one more time. Test it as close to spring as you can. Just know what you've got okay. going into the ground and, and what, your, what your plan is for, for disease, for soil temperatures. How are you going to manage that lower vigor that you might be seeing this year? So at a minimum, I would recommend that you test three times uh, throughout the The fall
0: to to spring. You mentioned indicators. Um, So if if there's producers there there now that have had their seed tested in the fall off the combine um, and they haven't had their seed tested yet heading into spring, um, if they are going back to look at their seed tests and, and asking the question of should I retest this seed before I put it in the ground, what kind of indicators um, would you say they should be looking for in that seed test um, to, to maybe question whether the quality has, has decreased over the winter season?
1: Right. So hopefully in the fall you've tested your, your germination and your vigor at the, at the very least. And it's that vigor test that becomes really crucial. A germination test is going to give you optimum conditions, like we talked about, and maximum ability. But a Vigor test is going to look at performance of your seed. Um, What a Vigor test does really well is predict predict seed emergence in the field, but it also predicts seed longevity. And the reason for this is because a a Vigor test is going to start to show lower test results before a germination test will. So it's more sensitive, it's going to pick up on, uh, it's, it's designed to pick up on seed aging, which is a whole other podcast probably, um, but when you have a good germination test and uh, your vigor test is quite low, so let's say your germination test at um, off the combine is 90%, but that vigor test is maybe 60%, that's a risk factor. So that's what I'd be looking at if you're going back. You know, you've, maybe you've got to go to another bin to source new seed. You're pulling those seed reports. Look at that vigor. If that vigor is low, or even if it's, say, medium, and then you test it again and it's starting to drop, that's an indicator that your seed viability in general might be unstable. So I would absolutely be looking at those uh, those vigor results.
0: And, and now that we've headed into this vigor topic, um, could you give me the the parameters on... Um, how are we testing for vigor? how does that different differ from the germination test um, and and is that is is that test again a standard um, across all different seed testing labs um, Is it different from you know maybe Eastern Canada or Western Canada and why did we pick those those test standards
1: right so there are two main um two main uh, areas, I guess, that uh, bigger testing can fall into. And one is direct tests and one are, uh, the other one is indirect tests. And the whole theory behind bigger tests is to try to isolate seed aging and put a value on it. Or, and maybe let's just call it seed performance because that's, maybe that's less uh, confusing to the issue. Um, in a direct test, what we do is we apply a direct stress we, we run a directly look at what happens if I put this seed into cool temperature for an elongated period of time. And then we put a measurement of performance. This is the most common serial vigor test that's uh, done in Canada. And it's a modification of, uh, of a vigor test that's found in, in uh, both the AOSA and ISTA testing. So the American testing, which is AOSA, and the international testing standard, which is ISTA, they have those standardized vigor tests. And so often seed labs are going into those two testing organizations to, to take methods from because those methods are already proven, they're validated, and they're field tested, which I think is really important. So very commonly in Canada, we'll, we'll see a, a cold test done on, uh, on cereal crops. And what this means is that the, the cereal crops are planted at five or six degrees. And uh, they're left for an extended period of time at that temperature. And then there's a minimum growth parameter set at the end of the test. The analyst will look to see if the seed meets the minimum growth requirement. And if it does, it's considered to be vigorous. And if it doesn't, then it falls into the non-vigorous. Uh, so it sounds kind of simple, but it's, um, it's really this uh, about how do we How do we um, slow down the metabolism of the seed? How do we slow down the, I shouldn't say metabolism there, um, the respiration rate of the seed and make it harder for the seed to complete its germination process? seeds which are damaged internally will take more time at low temperature to complete this biochemical process of germination. So that at the end of the test period, those seeds are much slower than other seeds. And that's really the theory behind why cold, vigor tests work, Is it's that lowering of the respiration rate. It's slowing down that, that seed with poor quality, its ability to complete the process as quickly as seeds which have have uh, good quality and aren't suffering from some of those same uh, kind of cellular damage.
0: So is, is that the same length of time that it's going through the germination test, that it's going through the vigor test, or is that time parameter different?
1: It's different. So the germination test is done in four to seven days, depending on the rate of growth and uh most commonly the serial vigor test takes 12 to 14 days
0: and all at cool all at cool temperature i mean we've talked a bit about germination um we've talked a bit about about vigor um and you did mention abnormals uh a few minutes back but maybe could you dip into what some of these other germination factors mean abnormals hard seeds dead seeds um fresh seeds, what's the definition around these and how, and how might this affect germination once it gets into the ground?
1: So we've already talked about normal seedlings and abnormal seedlings. Um, then there's a portion of seeds which fail to grow during the pest period. And those seeds are either categorized as fresh or dead. So the dead seeds have imbibed water but they, they have um, failed to grow and their tissue inside is necrotic. At the end of the germination period, we'll cut open each seed and we'll evaluate the tissue inside. Um, cereal seeds, which have really uh, watery endosperm and necrotic embryos, are definitely dead. There's, that's not a normal thing to happen. There's no coming back from that. Those are just seedlings which have no ability to, to have life. But a fresh seed will have imbibed water. Once you cut into it, the tissue still remain firm, and the embryo color is still normal. It just hasn't started growing yet. So there's either that hormonal imbalance that we talked about, or the conditions aren't quite right for that seed to start growing yet. The fresh seed has the potential to start growing either under different circumstances or given more time.
0: Okay. And and hard seeds. Right. And so
1: hard seeds are uh, seeds found normally in the family Fabaceae. So this would be like a. Alfalfas or peas or lentils. And uh, these seeds, as a form of dormancy, will sometimes have an impermeable seed coat, meaning that there is no ability for moisture to enter into the internals of the seed. At the end of the test period, that seed will be dry and in the same state as when you planted it. And if you pick it up, it'll plunk down back onto the table. So those seeds, um, we can't determine whether they're dead or fresh or normal. Or abnormal, they're simply hard seeds. They failed to imbibe imbibe water at the end of the test period.
0: But not typically, not not seen in, in the cereal crops grown in in Western Canada.
1: So really common in clovers, alfalfa, alsike, uh red clovers. That's really common. And in fact, there's even a grading standard uh, around hard seeds because it's just so common. Uh, some of the large seeded pulses. We will find hard seeds in uh, in crops as a form of dormancy, but I wouldn't say it's a regular occurrence or that it's at levels which have ever become overly concerning for Canadian or for for uh, Western Canadian producers.
0: Wonderful. Well, I mean, next I kind of want to get into um, the the disease side, the fungal screen. Um, the smut test um, and we have two different fusarium tests that are conducted Um, so maybe let's start with the the true loose smut test Um, it's not part of the fungal screen it's done on its own Um, so could you maybe give us a description of, of How that's carried out? Sure. So,
1: the um, procedure for true loose SMUT testing is really different than any of our other um, tests, which are are for the most part conducted by, say, plate or by PCR. The objective of the SMUT test is to isolate the embryos. Um, and this is done through a, a series of different chemical processes to remove the embryos from the endosperm. We have to run them through sieves. Um, we have to transfer them from different types of chemicals to clear away some of the other um, some of the other plant tissue that uh, exists around the embryo. And then the embryos are are stained and dyed, and then they're examined uh, for presence of uh, much.
0: Um, and there's two different. DNA tests, or two different fusarium tests that are done, Um, DNA and and plate. Why is there two different tests done?
1: Fusarium plate test is a traditional plate test that has been conducted for many years on different types of species. And the advantage of the the plate test is that there's a quantification result at the end. Um, So we plant... 200 seeds on PDA, and then we're examining how many colonies exist and expressing that as a percentage. You have 2% fusarium found on our sample. Um, the downside of that test is that it takes seven days, and that it does, uh, it is um, sterilized, surface sterilized before it's planted, which does remove some of that, um, maybe surface infection or what we would see as kind of late season infection on the seed. Now, the um, DNA test doesn't go through that process, so the seed is ground, and then uh, from there, the the, um, the test uh, isolates the DNA. And because we don't because we don't surface sterilize that one, we can get a, a broader scope of information from that test and uh, we can pick up trace amounts of uh, of fusarium detection that we're not able to see on the plate test. Now, if, uh, if you've submitted a sample to us and you've gotten a positive fusarium test, so yes, we found it, and then you've taken the same sample and plated it and found that the plate was at 0%, it's often because these trace amounts are are present on the seed, and that's a really important piece of information because it can be an indicator that there are spores present um, and that there may be some spores moving into your area, and I think uh, having the ability to to see those trace amounts from what we've seen here, like with our data, has been a, an indication that there could be fusarium moving in, uh, in seasons to come, provided the, the conditions are. Conducive to to disease. The molecular tests that we run, the DNA tests, uh, can be done overnight as well. So it's uh, an absence presence kind of test. So, yes or no, we have it or we don't have it. If you currently do not have Fusarium uh, in your area, this is absolutely the best test to start with. Um, it'll give you that negative. If it gives you a positive, it, it might be trace levels. You follow that up with that plate test and you get a lot of information about um, the whole season perspective of uh, Fusarium.
0: Do either of these tests distinguish between species or are we just saying yes or no that there is Fusarium?
1: So both of them do. Yes, both of them um, are targeting Fusarium graminearum. The DNA test will only detect Fusarium graminearum. The plate test, um, we can tell if it's not Fusarium graminearum, and if if requested, we can also tell you what other type of uh, Fusarium species that it might be. And you can get this information through a a fungal screen as well where we'll identify which uh, Fusarium species is present.
0: Speaking of the fungal screen, (laughs) <laughs> we could probably dip into that a little bit now. Um, I mean, there's, there's a, what is there, maybe a dozen tests on there. Are those all conducted in the same way? Is that all plate testing? What does that look like? Yeah,
1: so the fungal screen is uh, all of those pathogens are conducted uh, on the same test on PDA. So just a very big, broad-spectrum test where we're going to report colonies of what we see for each of those 10 species.
0: And, and how are you distinguishing between those species? Is it, it, like it, does it just come up as a visual difference of what that fungus looks like as it, gro- as it grows or, or how do you distinguish?
1: Uh, they're distinguished uh, based on morphology. So the pattern of their mycelium is uh, unique to each species. So a very well-trained disease diagnostician, who's not me, that's not my, <laughs> not my area, but certainly Kelly can speak on that, uh, will be able to tell the difference between uh, a different species based on that morphology.
0: So I imagine you guys have seen a lot of tests come in this year. Um, are, are you seeing any trends in in you know this year compared to last year, or you know tests that are came off, came in right off the combine versus tests coming in now? Um, could you maybe give some indication as to what we're seeing in in, in Alberta?
1: Sure. Um, so this year we've seen. a a big rise in the percentage of tests which have tested positive on our plate tests. Now, in 2018, 10% of our tests uh, were testing positive, like at various levels, but testing positive. And this is
0: for fusarium.
1: For fusarium. Um, and then in 2018, that number went down. We had a drier year. 7.7% of samples submitted were testing positive, and this year. So far, we're at 26.8% of of tests, so that's a total of uh, 2,600 tests right now, starting from September the 1st, are testing uh, positive. The overall uh, infection rate this year is uh, 1.89% of those that are testing positive.
0: So, not a huge amount of infection, but more presence.
1: Certainly more than we ever wanted to see, but yes, uh, I think the number here that's, that's really important is that uh, 26.8% of um, those submitted samples tested are showing positive. That's a, a pretty big jump from
0: 7.7 last year. All right, we're going to pause here and go to a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. Did you know that March 15th to the 21st is Canadian Agricultural Safety Week? EggSafe Alberta is inviting you to participate by having a conversation about safety on your farm. As your go-to source for farm safety tips, EggSafe Alberta believes in equipping farmers with the practical tools to integrate safety into the work you do on the farm. Farming is not just a job, it's a way of life. Let's work together to grow in EggSafe Canada. Visit EggSafeAB.ca for more information and and maybe kelly's been a little quiet over there <laughs> think waiting but i'm i'm curious kelly is this what are we seeing here why are we seeing increased occurrence, but not at high Well, it, it,
2: it, it indicates that we're we're continuing to see a, a buildup of infected residue uh, in fields uh, across the province, uh, certainly in southern Alberta, especially under irrigation and with corn and uh, some of the more, more susceptible classes of wheat, especially Durham, you know, they the, the amount of infested residue, had, you know, started to really build up in the latter part of the first decade decade of the 2000s to the point that you know by about 2009 or 10 producers unfortunately were seeing downgrading due to fusarium damaged kernels and those fusarium damaged kernels were predominantly due to fusarium which was quite a change compared to the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, so as you start to see a buildup of residue, you know, this year, uh, the summer started off fairly dry in many parts of the province. Uh, but as we progressed into late June, early July, things started to change. So... Uh, you had conditions that favored uh, production of spores by the fusarium graminearum fungus on crop residues. Uh, and then conditions that favored infection. So uh, because, you know, outside of southern Alberta, you know, maybe uh, the the area of the province along the border with Saskatchewan might be a bit more at, at risk and certainly some areas perhaps in and around the Edmonton region where where uh, labs like 2020 have picked up graminierum for a number of years now. But outside of those areas uh, it's still not a a large issue yet it it uh, you know but as we see the the residue the amount of infected residue continuing to build and and that's really facilitated by the tight rotations that we have so that canola cereal canola rotation in many cases you just don't have enough time for decomposition of of infested residues and as a consequence uh, you have infested residues in your field or your neighbor's field uh, and if you get conditions that favor spore production dispersal and then conditions that allow that spore to germinate on that head tissue and infect that serial head tissue all of a sudden you can pick up uh, uh, detections and initially um you would see it using the DNA or PCR based tests because it's it's much more sensitive so absolutely spot on as far as that giving you a really nice early indication of a potential problem starting to develop but uh, certainly the the you know it is concerning to see that rise uh and uh it it just means that this is an issue that that is continuing to to march across Alberta and you know in for, unfortunately in the future when we have more residue built up more infested residue built up uh we may start to see more downgrading uh uh in terms of Fusarium damaged kernels and where those Fusarium damaged kernels are actually due to graminearum And then, of course, you'll have the associated gun production. Uh, The levels of infection that that 2020 is seeing, you know, sort of the average level uh, in the lots that are infected, uh, is still quite low. Um, You know, it's really not until you start to get much above 10% infection, and it could be as high as 20, 30, 40, perhaps even even more in, in some of the epidemic
0: areas in Saskatchewan or Manitoba, uh, below about 10%. I guess that's my question, Kelly, is is we're seeing these low percent, like the inc- incidence has increased, but the numbers are very low. Not very low, but they're, they're low, 1.5% where you, we can see them in Saskatchewan, much higher than that. So what what is that, are we potentially one wet season away from that? Or would that take multiple wet seasons over and over? Because I mean, we've like like Carrie was explaining, we've seen it go up and we've seen it go drop down in dry years. So, you you know what what what's what are the risk factors that may lead us to those very high numbers? I think,
2: you know, right now the, the the data that you're seeing from 2020 is indicating that we have a problem that's starting to develop, and it's starting to develop in areas outside of sort of the traditional FHB area in southern Alberta, where, you know, we have seen since about 2005, 6, 7, arm uh, becoming a much more important component of the Sort of the fungal community that is normally found on, on cereal seed. Uh, you know, the big risk factor, the, the, one of the biggest would be, of course, the weather. So if we start seeing a series of years where we have uh, lots of moisture in June, so that gets the fungus ready, it, it facilitates production of the windborne. Spore stage or the, the the fruiting bodies that release those spores on crop residues. We have wet conditions in late June, early July, uh, and then all of a sudden you have more spores being produced, a greater amount of because of a greater amount of, of residue. Uh, You have more uh, infections on head tissue and other parts of the the plant so that, you know, if you you have several years of of those wet conditions, and the ideal would be good moisture in June that gets the fungus ready uh, so that it's active and, uh, you know, In contrast, let's say this year, fungus probably didn't get active until late June and into early July, so, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have a lot of severe infections, um, you might have superficial infections, uh, because the, the infections occurred not right at the anthesis stage but more, you know, mid milk to late milk, uh and so on. So weather would be a key factor. And we come back to crop rotation. Uh and as a pathologist it you know, it is it is a, a big factor. Um you know not allowing enough time between uh host crops for decomposition of residue, uh, and and producers could be using a, a longer rotation, but one of the other things you have to keep in mind is years like 2017 and 18, you know, there may have been a small amount of infection down in the canopy itself, stem tissue and so on, and those dry summers mean that there's less microbial activity on that soil surface, less the composition of residues. So those residues can then persist for a longer period of time. So you may find that a, a rotation with at least two years between host crops may not necessarily be enough for complete decomposition of that residue because of dry conditions. So the other thing would be uh, looking at the crop that you're growing. And I would say, you know, if you look at Uh, crops that are highly susceptible, uh, classes of wheat that tend to be more susceptible, so durum wheat, for instance, some of the CPS varieties or some of the newer classes. Uh, What that does is it means that it just simply is more prone to infection. You get more severe infection, more extensive colonization of the, the plant tissue, in contrast, uh, a variety that is listed as an MR, for instance, you, you'll still have infection, unfortunately. The the resistance isn't as complete as what you would, a, a producer or grower would see with a straight breast resistant variety, but it's less extensively colonized. There's less infected residue going back into the field. So uh, certainly a combination of wet conditions in June, July, tight rotation, so a single year between host crops, and then growing very, very susceptible varieties would be sort of, I would say, uh, a, a way that you'd see a, a, a more rapid buildup uh, of this particular disease and, and a more rapid uh, increase in terms of its impact over a short period of
0: time. So, so I'm going I'm to pose a question here for you then, Kelly. I'm a producer in Northwestern Alberta. I haven't noticed Fusarium in my fields before, but this year I have. Um, I have I have one seed lot that is 1.5 percent. I have one seed lot that is five percent, and another one that's seven percent Fusarium. What should I do with these seed lots? Is 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 that are those percentages putting me at too high of a risk? And I should back away and find different seed lots um is this something that i can remedy with a uh, seed treatment um you know excluding all of those other factors that may come from the seed test at this point just if we focus on fusarium and getting those numbers how should i as a producer respond if i haven't seen fusarium in my fields before
2: you know the key thing is if you haven't seen fusarium, and and I, I would focus on that, and and that would serve as an indication. So, you, let's say you've sent grain samples coming off the combine down to 2020. You've been diligent as far as testing your seed source, even if it's seed that that you know you're not sort of harvesting off your own field. And if if all indications. Uh, show that it hasn't been an issue for you, you haven't detected it, it hasn't caused downgrading, and where the downgrading due to FDK is actually due to gruniarum and not other fusarium species or other pathogens, I would see a producer would want to be cautious. And the reason why I say that is this is a disease, fusarium headlight, especially caused by grimini is, is such a difficult disease to manage once it becomes established in your field. The tools that we have uh, work reasonably well, but under epidemic conditions, favorable conditions, they don't provide the level of control that that I think a producer would would want. So being a little more on the cautious side, I I would say, you know, looking at what they have... um, you know, I, I would be cautious, especially with those lots that have that higher level of of infection, because you know you've got to imagine taking those seed lots, planting them uh, over an acre, the thousands of seeds that you plant per unit area, and it just increases as your level of seed infection increases, and and. Uh, The concern with seed infection and and long-distance dispersal, uh, you know, and it it was more of an issue here in the early 2000s, and, uh, you know, As gruminium becomes more established, it becomes less of an important factor because the pathogen's already there. But what happens is the fungus becomes active as that seed is germinating. It will grow to infect some of the root tissue perhaps, but it'll also grow and infect uh, the cotyledon tissue, or sorry, the coleoptile tissue. It'll infect the crown tissue. And as the growing season progresses, it'll grow up actually and based on some of the work that my colleague, Kikwan Shi, has done here with Alberta Ag in Lacombe, back probably in about 2002, 2003, in that region, it can grow actually up to the third node. So now you have a source of infected residue in, in that field. And then if you follow that with a tight rotation and susceptible varieties, that Amount of the residue will continue to build up in in that field now seed treatments excellent strategy to try and mitigate some of that risk. The downside is that they may not completely eradicate the pathogen and, and normally even systemic seed treatments they're applied using good application technology at the right rate have a real difficult time eradicating completely eradicating or killing a fungus that's well established within that seed especially deep-seated internal infections. Seed treatment may have more and a, a much better level of control and eradication if you've got uh, a pathogen that's on the outside of the seed or there's superficial infections, uh, uh, so you don't have deep-seated internal uh, infections with hyphae in that seed. Uh, certainly looking at the seed treatment products that we have, you know, the newer generations of products have much better activity on fusarium graminearum. But um, it may not completely mitigate that risk. So, you know, if uh, you know if the producer's in a difficult situation, the, the, their their access to good seed lots is limited. Uh, that's a, a real challenge. I guess the recommendations I would have would be to look at your seed lot. I, I would probably try and have it cleaned aggressively to try and remove some of the the infected seed. It may not remove all of it because if it's a late infection towards late milk early dough, uh you won't have a lot of that shriveling the kernel itself will look normal but you'll still have that infection so
0: but even if i have a seed lot at 1.5 percent and i haven't seen fusarium i haven't been downgraded for it I should still be very cautious or does that come when I get into that five ten percent range I would still be cautious
2: especially if you're in an area where the pathogen hasn't been previously reported or you know has been at a very very low level and and it it, it really relates to the number of seeds that you plant per per unit area and um, you know if you um, If you look at that and you look at a a seed lot uh, that has, let's say, a half a percent seed infection, if you look at that and you look at a a seed lot uh, that has, let's say, a half a percent seed infection and uh, you plant that in your field, You know, if you can imagine planting 300 seeds per meter squared and you convert that into seeds per hectare and then into seeds per acre, you have a half a percent seed infection. Now you've got 6,000 or just over 6,000 seeds per acre that are infected in your field and if you look at a lot of the research that's been done and there was work done in Ontario with winter wheat and looking at trends, the transmission rate, it can range anywhere from around 50% to close to 100% transmission rate. So you have 50, 50 seeds out of 100 that you plant, those 50 seeds will produce plants, the 50 plants that have infection uh, if it's 100% transmission.
0: How, do I, how does this change if I do I've already seen fusarium in my fields. I've been downgraded for it, and I'm getting a seed lot back that's three percent, or two percent, or even five percent. Does it does it change my management then? I think the focus in
2: that. Situation changes from being concerned about introducing a problem or making or, or or you know planting a low level of infection, so you have uh, infections of those seedlings throughout the field. So it switches from that concern about introducing it to more of will that seed perform for me? Will it germinate? Will I have good stand establishment? And uh, and so on. And and uh, that's where you know, having a fungal screen, having a germination test, having a vigor test provides that additional information. And uh, often at those low rates of infection, the impact on germination and vigor are relatively minor. And, and as a consequence, you know, a seed treatment may or may not provide uh, uh, you know, an improvement in germination beyond what's there, especially if you have a lot with good germination and vigor. That being said, it's still a concern, and there are are other things that may be on that seed or there may be other aspects in the soil that you're concerned about. So in that situation, having a seed treatment provides an additional peace of mind. But once you start to see higher levels of infection, that's where you might encounter issues with good stand establishment and 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 you'll pick that up on your germination level. Uh, and so your germination level will quickly drop from a, you know, 90 95% or higher level to go well below 80, 70, even 60%. And at that's the point where talking to your seed testing professionals, the seed growers, uh, in terms of what do I do in that situation? Do I use that lot of seed uh and In years like uh, the spring of 2017, you're dealing with issues that occurred late summer, fall in 2016, very similar to this year in many respects. So you don't maybe necessarily have a good sort of uh, uh, amount of seed to choose from in terms of having good germination.
0: Kerry, have we seen numbers like that where they're that high that they're impacting Germination? Have we seen um lots like that coming out of Alberta? Or is there areas that are of more concern?
1: Um, I would say that um at this point we're only seeing rarely a lot which is uh, at that concerning level. The the vast majority of the of the um percentage infection that we're seeing is like Kelly said at a point that is not affecting the, the germination.
0: Th- that kind of leads us into the fungal screen part of this conversation. Um, I mean, knowing on when and how to respond to fusarium is going to be important, especially since we've seen it moving across our province. Um, those of us who, who haven't seen it as often trying to avoid those, sounds like avoid those seed lots. Um, if we can, um, if you have seen fusarium, then it's about preventing it impacting your standability. Um, but I think in the fungal screen, there's I've, I've seen um, maybe some some concerns or some um, lacum concerns around certain results that we get from some of these fungal screens, like Alternaria. Um, you know, responses in the seventy percent. Is this something I need to respond to um, uh, with the? Uh, and I'm going to pronounce this terribly. Cochleobulus, uh, sativus um, with common root rot, um, we, we've seen that sometimes. So I guess Kelly, looking at some of these fungal screen results, um, are there? Can we group these based on um, results that we actually need to respond to versus results that are are in for information purposes but aren't actually going to impact crop standability or, or crop establishment?
2: Uh, no, sorry. Excellent questions, and and it it certainly, you know, using a, a you know a service like the Fungal Screen at, at 2020 uh, gives you some really great information to to make some 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 effective decisions. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of the seed, it's the foundation for the crop; it's what you start with. So starting off with uh, good quality seed, uh, mitigating any potential issues that are there are important. Um, The thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this over the years, and certainly when producers really started to uh, test seed and and the the companies like 2020 and others started to offer a service for screening, um, producers, I think, in many cases were surprised at what what could be found on seed. and, And, you know, at times, we're very, very concerned. So, you know, you you would get a call and a producer, and I'm sure. Staff at 2020 would would have similar calls where a producer would say, "Well, I've got fusarium on my seed." And when the initial tests were being done, um, uh, you know, initially it was just maybe a whether it was fusarium species were there or not. And then the expertise at the labs was 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 improved, and they were able to differentiate the different species of fusarium. So that you know, the first question I would often ask would be, "What what have you found on your seed?" And and you have to remember it's a living thing and and it's out in the environment uh, the previous year and the mother crop uh, and you will have various things that grow normally on that uh, cereal head and that you can detect on the seed. Certainly alternaria is one of those uh, fungi so alternaria species and in cereals uh, It's not really an issue. Uh, In contrast, if we go back in time to when we had a lot of Polish canola being grown, alternaria black spot and specific species of alternaria that attacked canola could cause a lot of trouble. But the Argentine varieties, Nebraska and varieties that we have tend to be quite resistant. So it's not as much of an issue. But producers would get very concerned that, you know, their seed wasn't pristine, that it had no fungal growth. And it's perfectly normal to find a level of different fungi on the seed. The key thing is what species are there and uh, are these species associated with problems. So, alternaria and cereals, is just an indication of, you know, you've had some moisture the previous year, that you've had uh, these aprophytic organisms starting to grow in that tissue and in 2016 and again unfortunately in 2019 we would we are seeing a fair bit of sooty mold. So those are fungi like Alternaria species and Cladosporium species that are saprophytes. They grow on dead plant tissue. So if you have a field where you have, let's say a low spot, you get drowning out, the plants prematurely ripen in there. Initially, they will be a nice golden brown color. But eventually, if you have moisture, they'll turn a sort of a dusty gray or charcoal gray or black because of the growth of these sooty molds like alternaria. If the crop uh, uh, normally matures, but because of wet conditions, you can't get at it in terms of harvesting it in a timely fashion, you'll see the same thing. You'll see a crop that turns from a nice golden-brown color especially if you have lots of moisture, to something that's this dusty gray or or blackish color. So if you're seeing alternary in your seed, uh, don't be too alarmed. Uh, You know, if the levels are extremely high, so let's say well above 50%, you might want to talk to the seed analyst and look closely at your germination levels and your vigor levels, and if those two values are still good, uh, and are excellent, then it, it's a it's a good seed lot. So then I would be looking at other uh, seed-borne fungi that are found. So certainly Fusarium graminearum would be a big issue uh, and would be the main problem perhaps other species of fusarium, but less so. Uh, In the cereals, you can also get, and you did a good job, uh, Jeremy, sativus, and I may have crucified or murdered that name too. Uh, It's the causal agent of spot blotch, so it's a leaf disease that you see, especially in barley, less so in wheat. It's also the fungus that causes kernel smudge. It also causes seed and seedling blights. And it's also the same fungus that causes common root rot. I would be especially concerned if I was seeing elevated levels of C. sativis um, that were very, very high, uh, and especially w- well over that 10% level, but mainly in barley. It, it's normally not a huge issue in terms of wheat and seed-borne uh, infection and implications for seed germination and stand establishment. But in barley, definitely. It's, it, it's probably on par with Fusarium graminiarum as far as having an impact.
0: Jumping back a little bit, um, we talked a little bit about Alternaria, Cladosporium. Where does Aspergillus sit in this as well?
2: Oh, Aspergillus and also uh, the, the other one that producers should be concerned about is Penicillium. And uh, those are are saprophytic fungi that uh, produce very small spores, easily when dispersed. So then normally you'd see them, you could pick them up on grain. Uh, They're normally uh, fungi that are uh, produced from the soil, uh, typically, or perhaps even old crop residue. Uh, But uh, their biggest problem... The biggest problem that occurs with aspergillus and penicillium isn't in the field. It's actually in the bin. So this year, for instance, or 2016, uh, we had a lot of crop that was probably harvested a bit on the wet side, a little on the tough side. And if you don't get that grain dried down rapidly or aerated well, uh, you can start to have growth of aspergillus and penicillium within the bin. So they're often referred to as storage molds. And uh in terms of grain that's being marketed either domestically or internationally, uh those two fungi unfortunately produce some pretty nasty mycotoxins. So penicillium is t- typically okra toxin, uh, and with Aspergillus uh it's it's other uh nasty nasty mycotoxins and um So they can have implications in terms of marketability, but if you look at seed quality and if you have heating in the bin, uh, I think again you pick up issues with the germination test and the the uh, bigger test as well as if you do a fungal screen you would see evidence of these things growing out and they tend to be extremely competitive and would often grow out from grain uh, and mask some of the other things that were there. So normally you don't necessarily see problems with penicillium and aspergillus uh, until, you know, unless you have issues in, in storage, so heating in the bin and, and so on. Uh, sometimes they can be a field problem, and normally that has occurred where you have a very dry spring and the, the seed sits at, uh, in the, the, the seed row for an extended period of time and uh, often uh, another name for these fungi are dry rot. So you'll get a, uh, you know, they can grow under somewhat drier conditions compared to some other fungi. So over a longer period of time, so maybe two to three weeks if the seed is sitting there, these fungi, Penicillium and Aspergillus, can grow relatively low temperatures too and dry conditions. And they all actually start to have an impact on, on the germination capacity and, and vigor of that seed sitting in the in the seed row. So if you look at the blue book or the guides to crop protection, you'll see some fungicides, some seed treatments will list penicillium or uh, aspergillus on the label and and uh, where they really have an impact would be if you've had a bit of heating in the bin and then you have a dry start to the year and the seed is sitting in in the seed for row for an extended time those seed treatments will help to limit the impact of penicillium and and aspergillus
0: that's that's good to know i uh i, I wasn't aware of that um so i guess Moving on from that, then, I mean, we kind of covered C sativas. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, fusarium and where those lines are. Um, if, you, if I'm getting my test back on the fungal screen, I'm seeing a test for, for fusarium head blight, so fusarium um and then for seedling blight root rot fusarium species. Should I be looking at these results differently? Should I be making my decisions on seed treatment or seed lost lot use. Um, it, it, like, how do I compare looking at these two different numbers when I'm making decisions? So in
2: terms of Fusarium graminearum versus the level of other Fusarium species, um, you know, I I would certainly focus on Griminiarum, but I would not ignore things like Fusarium culmorum or perhaps even Fusarium avanatium. And what you may want to focus on is the overall level of Fusarium infection. So the Griminiarum level might be one, two percent perhaps, but maybe you have five, six percent, or ten percent, or maybe even a bit more with these other fusarium species in total. You know, once you start getting well above ten percent infection with say total fusarium species, or especially if it's gruminarium, that's where you might start to pick up uh, in your germination tests and your vigor tests some implications as far as seed quality and thus a a, a good seed treatment would be important to use on on that seed lot Uh, uh, in that case. um, You know, you may also want to look at total fungal load. So you, you look at Fusarium graminiarum, you look at the amount of seed infection with uh, the other two Fusarium species that we predominantly find, especially Avinatium and and then the level of C. sativus infection, especially if it's barley, or in the case of wheat, one of the other things that is sort of hiding a bit in the wings is the blotch pathogen. So uh, I'm old, so I always think of the name that I learned when I was in university in the 80s and that's Septoria nidorum. But the taxonomist changed the name to Stagnospora nidorum, and now it's Parastagnospora nidorum. But it's Septoria nidorum to me. So that is, that, that's certainly a, a fungus and a pathogen that causes gloom blotch. It causes leaf blotch, so it it will build on the leaf tissue and then move up onto the head, producing sort of dark, purpley-brown lesions, and you'll see the small, typically more brownish pycnidia on the glooms of that plant. And if you have uh, higher levels of infection with septoria nodorum, uh, especially in wheat, it's less of an issue in in barley, uh, you may start to see... uh, Uh, some issues in terms of seed germination. So, uh, you know, again, you know, levels of infection are probably much above that 10% level. But it is quite a common pathogen. Uh, And uh, often because it infects the head, it can actually produce symptoms that uh, mimic those of Fusarium graminiarum in terms of Fusarium damaged kernels. But, you know, again, you look at each of the different species, but if you've got some of these key things that affect seed germination and stand establishment, so Fusarium graminearum, some of the other Fusarium species, uh, things like Cacolobus, sativus and Barley, or or parastagnos in wheat if your total level of infection starts to get into that 10 or 20 or 25 percent range you may and and again you probably will start to see some evidence of issues with germination and vigor again a seed treatment that has actives that target those species will be very important
0: i mean the one one i don't i i'm looking at this the seed tests here, and, and the one, actually I think there's two we haven't covered here then, would be epicoccum species and uh, Pyranophora species. Um, are these playing a role in germination as well? Is that something we should be protecting against? Is that going to show up in our, our our germination tests? It sounds like a lot of these, yeah. if they are significant enough, they're going to show up in our germination
2: Yeah. Test. The epicoccum is probably somewhat similar to alternaria. It's a saprophytic fungus, and it would normally be expected to see it there. You know, depending on the conditions the previous summer, you may have higher levels versus lower. But, uh, you know, I look at the percent infection, and, and then I again key in on the germination and bigger values that you're seeing from the test. Paranatra is an interesting one. Uh, and it, uh, Pyrenophora tritici-repentis, is the causal agent of tan spot in wheat, and red smudge, same fungus, just moves from the leaf up onto the head. And then in barley, Pyrenophora teres, you have a complex of two. Uh, net blotches. So you have the net form of net blotch, which is pyrinophora teres form teres, and then you have spot form net blotch, which is pyrinophora teres uh, uh, form maculata, so the spot form of net blotch. And I would be more concerned, and you wouldn't be able to tell them apart, very similar morphology in terms of the spores, but if you're seeing barley, uh, with high levels of net blotch on the seed. And uh, certainly in some of the research that we've done over the last 25 years, we can see 30, 40, even upwards of 70 to 80 percent seed infection with Paranophora teres. And it would be typically the net form of net blotch. And if you look at that fungus, you look at that disease. Seed-borne infection can be an important source of inoculum for further leaf disease development. So, if you plant uh, seed heavily infected with netform net blotch, net and you're a producer that's trying to be very cautious about your rotation, you know, it's, you've got at least, you know, let's say a, even a three- or four-year rotation, your level of infected residue in the field would be very, very low. So you're doing everything else right but you don't look at your seed quality and the level of infected seed and and you know you you might say that uh brown bag seed or common seed or you're reusing the seed on your farm may tend to have a bit more infection so you you might be actually putting that pathogen back into the field and you get seed to seedling transmission on up onto the coleoptile tissue in the first true leaf And now those lesions on that barley seedling are producing spores of the net blotch fungus, which are dispersed to healthy leaves. And if the conditions are favorable and the variety is susceptible, they'll infect, they'll produce a new crop of lesions and a new crop of spores. So that takes place, that cycle of spore landing on a leaf, infecting and producing a new lesion and a new crop of spores takes about seven days roughly. So if you can think of a susceptible variety, favorable weather conditions, that pathogen will rapidly cycle on that growing crop. So now you've done everything right as far as your rotation, other uh, management practices, but you've introduced it via seeds. So that's another one that... Especially for growers that are on extended rotations, barley growers, I would be looking at a fungal screen. Do I have a lot of net blotch there? And if so, perhaps you need to look at a different seed source or making sure you use a really good seed treatment with good uh, application coverage. The other one that I would also look at, if you're looking at tweaking your program, would be Parasphagnosporin in wheat. And there's a bit more evidence that it can transmit from the seed to the seedling and then cycle on the growing crop during the growing season. The the tan spot is another potential one that could potentially transmit, but there isn't enough research uh, on that. It, it, it's still not clear whether it's an important source of seed-borne inoculum. Now, That being said, if you're in a rotation where you're only one year between or two years between host crops, and if that host crops barley, in that situation, the amount of infection that you might introduce via your seed is minuscule probably versus what's already in the field on the old barley residue that's there. Or conversely, if you're looking at uh, bloom blotch, the leaf blotch fungus, parastagnosporin adorum again that infected wheat residue in a in a single year between wheat crops or two years between wheat crops would provide the bulk of the inoculum that you'd be dealing with so
0: i'm getting the impression from this that the complexity of asking the question of whether i want to use a seed treatment whether i want to change seed lots is very much dependent on the management system you're in at that point whether you have disease in that field already whether this is going to be a concern in season versus germination there's no real nice formula that you can say you know if these add up to 20 percent, or if these add up to 15 percent, you should definitely either change seed lots or add a seed treatment um, I'm, I'm getting the impression from from what you've what you've described that it's much more complex than that and then i guess i'll push the question over to to carrie um i mean you you've we've listed off some of these diseases um and where potential concerns are depending on different management systems but um are these things that we are seeing um in some of the t- seed test results from western canada or are we seeing issues with um a high net blotch or spot um tan spot or 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 gloom and leaf blotch, are we seeing results from this or, or is this maybe a non-issue this year? You know,
1: I don't have that data sitting in front of me, so I wish I did because I can answer that really well. Um, from what I understand anyway and from what I remember is that it's really dependent on uh, a different area. So we're so focused right now on the fusarium that I, I honestly hadn't uh, compiled any data to present on, on the other species. So
0: sure and and maybe i mean you guys do do tests um with treated and non-treated seed to see whether that the, the producer is actually going to see a response from having a seed treatment on that infected seed um are you seeing a lot of that done this year
1: yeah absolutely and we're highly recommending that i mean in a year where there are you know, there may not be other better choices to take, um, and and we have to use some disease or some seed where we know there is some disease risk. Uh, testing your seed treatment directly on that seed in the lab is a really great tool for producers. We're seeing lots of people taking that this year. Um, we're really strongly recommending that um, that producers do this. We'll take the seed. We'll treat it with uh, treatment of your choice. We'll test it side by side, treated and bare. And then we'll give you a comparison of the levels of disease uh, between those two. And that's a, it's a really great tool to take a look at uh, management and making some of those tough decisions in the in a year where... So, you know, seed selection might be a little bit sparse.
0: I mean, this this isn't an inexpensive decision to make, um, and knowing how and when to best use a seed treatment um, is important, and I think, you know, using that tool of, of making that direct comparison, how much of a result is this going to make in my germination, how much more value am I getting out of my seed lot. Um, Am I actually reducing the risk of this disease proliferating in my future crops um, because I'm increasing the amount in my residue? I think these are important questions to be asking, so it's good to have these tools. Um, This has been a wonderful conversation, and we've covered so much information. Kelly, was there anything else you wanted to add um, in terms of, of, of that fungal screen? I know you had mentioned um, about uh, the disease for, for net... Was it um, Paragnospora, uh nodorum <laughs> excuse me for probably butchering yeah. that um about fusarium downgrading i know you mentioned that quickly and i wanted to tie back to that maybe before we closed out because um, i think sure. that there's been some confusion around downgrading when it comes to that
2: you know i can't emphasize enough uh the importance of you know this disease screen it it it, it just gives you additional information whether you're looking at uh, the the seed that you're intending to plant and and what Strategies you may need to use, and, and depending on what you find and and the germination levels and vigor levels. But I would say it's also important if you're harvesting grain and you're not intending to to keep it for seed, but you're harvesting it to, to, to market uh, uh, for various end use, uh End uses. Uh, I think a fungal screen also gives you some valuable information and and i say that specifically because uh you know over the years even going back to the late 90s and throughout the 2000s and working with people like randy clear at the canadian grain commission and tom graffenhan and the new fellow that's there sean um you know, working, especially with Randy Clear, you know, in areas where Fusarium graminearum wasn't well established. So we think of the late 1990s, early 2000s, that was largely most of central Saskatchewan and west to into Alberta. And, and producers were still getting downgrading. They, you know, they were still finding uh, the elevator agents or graders were finding Fusarium damaged kernels. But typically what was happening is those fusarium damaged kernels in areas where Griminiarum wasn't well established or was just starting to build up, uh, those fusarium damaged kernels, which could quickly knock, you know, a CWRS wheat from a number one to a number two to a number three, were not due to Griminiarum, but they were due to other Fusarium species like Avenaceum, which doesn't produce the Fusarium comorum does uh, produce Dawn, but it it's one that uh, doesn't produce wind-dispersed spores. The spores tend to be more rain-splashed, and it doesn't it isn't something that you, you see a lot of on on seed. Maybe under exceptional circumstances, uh, the other pathogen that you'd find on those FDKs uh, is the the septoria fungus, so Parastagnospora nadorum. And uh, the Green Commission has uh, some excellent uh, illustrations of that on their website, uh, uh, you know, showing the difference or the similarity, I might sort of more say more so between FDKs, fusion damaged kernels caused by Grimini arum versus those caused by stagnosporin or parastagnosporin So if you find you're in a situation where you've got downgrading, the elevator agent says you've got FDK, and it can be quite difficult to tell apart, quite frankly, if um, uh, you might want to take your grain and maybe even specifically ask the seed testing lab to also pull out some of the fusarium damaged kernels or kernels that have those symptoms. Find out what's there. Find out if you have griminiarum. Do a, a Dawn test on a bulk representative sample of grain because if you find that you don't have griminiarum and you don't have Dawn on that harvested grain, that actually may allow you to uh, Argued that, that your grade should be revised and and changed from a number three to a, a number two or perhaps even a number two to a number one. The other thing is that you you know if you don't have dawn there that opens up a number of different markets. So you know if you have dawn levels that are well above one part per million, that means that that grain that you have, whether it's wheat or barley, may not be great for for hog feed. But if you can demonstrate you don't have or you've got no dawn. there's some uh, the wider sort of window of, of marketing opportunities for you. Oh,
0: that is a very useful piece of information right there. And I'm, I'm sure there's a couple producers listening to this going, I wonder if I should be sending in my, my, uh, my grain at this point because um, I've been downgraded and, and you know, I want to make sure that it's actually fusarium and I'm not being downgraded for something else um because obviously that that sounds like a risk of that well
2: so certainly that that again and the the cost of it is relatively minor when you start comparing it to what you put into your nitrogen fertilizer bill or even your end crop herbicide applications or fungicide applications uh the other thing you know so it 's important in terms of your grade the other thing is it's strategic information it's giving you an indication of, do I have a problem that's starting to build? And if so, let's say I'm seeing Griminiarum when I haven't in the past, so you're testing the grain that you've harvested, uh, you could start to maybe shift your management strategies to try and mitigate some of that that risk. So both the seed that you're intending to plant and then the grain that you've harvested if you're not intending on planting that it's still useful to do that fungal screen uh, because it gives you information that I've got some issues in my field and maybe I need to change varieties or lengthen the rotation or maybe take a closer look at my in-crop fungicide program to try and mitigate some of those issues.
0: Well- Again, thank you both very much for this, Kerry. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we uh, before we closed off? And and Kelly, obviously, you too. Um,
1: yeah, I just uh, you know I'd like to really encourage uh, producers to to really use their seed labs. Um, you know, we're more than just a, a number that ends up on a report that uh, you know you can download offline. We're really here to help consult with you and to help you. To help producers really understand what these results mean, and there's there's so much more to it that you just can't get down on a you know on a test result at the end. If you have questions, please call the lab. You know, talk to someone who actually looked at your seed. It's it's really amazing the kind of notes that we could take just uh, on on every on every sample that uh that can help you put together might be a piece of information that can really help you put together a really good plan uh for your upcoming season. So I just really want to encourage and then just to, to let people know that this is a service that, you know, that we offer phone the lab, have a talk with us. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we love about our jobs. Let us help you figure out a good plan uh, moving forward.
0: Again, thank you both very much uh, for taking the time to chat. Um, Hopefully this provided a lot of information for producers, and um, I look forward to chatting you in the future. Excellent. Thank you, Jeremy.
1: Thank you so much.
0: thanks for listening everyone if you enjoyed this podcast please take a second to rate and review it and share it with all your friends uh, this helps us grow and get our messages out um, you can also sign up for the growing point newsletter by going to AlbertaWheat or albertabarley.com uh, and sign up on our mailing list this will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles interviews and newsletters so again thanks for listening and we'll see you next time